0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And this is part two of our two-parter on advice columns. In case you missed the last episode, stop what you're doing and go listen to it right now. (laughs) No, you can keep listening to this one. Uh, in case you missed the last episode, for a quick recap, we talked about the history of the advice column, which goes all the way back to 1690. I can hear your brains exploding right now. It is incredible. I know. Um, and we talked about how the content of advice columns changed over time to be more, less about propriety mm-hmm.
3: and more about personal Issues And by personal, I do mean sex. Yeah. Well, no, just uh, as we mentioned, we talked a little bit about this in our last episode. As time went on, the attitudes towards sex, both in society and within the safe realm of the advice column, did change. And Adrian Bingham writes about this in Newspaper Problem Pages and British Sexual Culture Since 1918, in which he talks about how... In the interwar period and into the 40s, these problem pages, these advice columns, almost invariably provided staunch defenses of conventional morality and portrayed sexuality as a dangerous instinct. You have to protect yourself from these dangerous instincts. But moving on into the 50s and 60s and even the 70s, sexuality was increasingly depicted as positive and, moving even forward in time, these problem pages and advice columns have even developed a more hedonistic approach, he says.
2: Yeah, which is why the title of this episode is From Dear Abby to Dan Savage, right. who would take, I'm sure, pleasure being described as hedonistic. Um, and he also talks about how they've been presented more overtly as entertainment. So, two women who really get things going at that start of that shift toward more open sexuality, more sex positivity in advice columns who also rescue the advice column from its death in the newspapers as it was starting to to trickle off were a pair of sisters, twin sisters who were born July 4th, 1918
3: in Sioux City, Iowa. And that is, don't get these mixed up folks. Pauline, Esther Friedman and Esther Pauline Friedman, better known as Dear Abby and Ann Landers. Yeah, these were they were identical twins. They studied journalism at the same college. They were even married on the same day. So you'd think like, oh, that's adorable. They must be so close. They must love each other so much. They were feuding advice columnists. Yeah. So the first one to jump into this business is Esther Pauline Friedman, letterer. That's, that's her married last name. Otherwise known as Epi. She, uh, she took over the Ann Landers column which started at the Chicago Sun-Times under Ruth Crowley. And she entered a contest, right? To get that column? Yeah, in
2: 1955, the Chicago Sun-Times had a contest for the Ann Landers column because I believe Ruth Crowley had passed away. And the thing about Ann Landers was it was one of the remaining big names in the business. By the 1940s, some newspapers had stopped syndicating advice columns altogether. And so Eppie enters this contest, lo and behold... She wins. And apparently, Eppy had a knack for writing advice columns because within the first 18 months, she took the Ann Landers column from 26 to 110 papers. And she was known for a homey, more detailed style.
3: Yeah, so about a year later, you know, you're thinking, okay, that's great. One sister went off and, you know, she, she won this contest and now she's a really successful columnist. I bet you're happy for her, sister. Sister twin. Sister, twin sister. But, uh, no, Pauline Esther goes out and, uh, pitches Dear Abby under, under the pen name Abigail Van Buren. Yeah, the, the feud
2: between Dear Abby and Ann Landers starts because Pauline claims that in those early days of Epi taking over as Ann Landers, that she would call up old Pauline and say, what do you think about this? And Pauline would help her write the columns. Now, of course, Ann Landers, now becoming a household name, was not pleased that her sister was spilling these secrets, so it starts this feud And Pauline's like, well, I'll just start my own thing. And it was funny because her motivation for starting it. Yeah, was she seemed to be pretty good at it. And perhaps it was some kind of competition with her sister. But she publicly said that she really just wanted to be more than a housewife because her husband was very wealthy. And she at one point said, quote, there has to be something more to life than Mahjong. My mother would disagree. Um and that was her motivation for taking Abigail Van Buren aka Dear Abby to the San Francisco Chronicle and it kicks off in 1956 and her style was far more quippy and do we have do we have some some examples of a some Dear Abby responses because one of the reasons why we did want to do this two parter on advice columnist was because of the recent passing of Dear Abby and Landers her sister Esther Friedman the Letterer had died in 2002 but Dear Abby died in early 2013.
3: Right, yes, yeah, so you mentioned her quippy style. She she did have some great zingers, some one-liners. Uh One person wrote in to say, you know, my son married this woman and, and in February, and the baby was born in August at eight and a half pounds. How is it possible for such a premature baby to be so big? And Dear Abby's response was, the baby was on time. The wedding was late. Forget it. You know, and like, I mean, that's... That's pretty, not racy, but I mean, that's pretty advanced for the time that this person was writing in. Well, talking about advanced, uh, Dan Savage, who we brought
2: up a lot in the podcast before, he is the host of the podcast Savage Love, better known for his sex advice column in Seattle's The Stranger Alt Weekly. Um, and he was talking in a, in a fairly recent episode of Savage Love about Dear Abby's legacy. And this was his favorite, letter and her very quippy response. So the letter goes, about four months ago, the house across the street was sold to a quote-unquote father and son, or so we thought. We later learned it was an older man, about 50, and a young fellow, about 24. This was a respectable neighborhood before this odd couple moved in. They have all sorts of strange-looking company, men who look like women, women who look like men, blacks, whites, Indians. Yesterday, I even saw two nuns go in there. Abby, these weirdos are wrecking our property values. How can we improve the quality of this once respectable neighborhood? Signed, up in arms. Dear Abby writes, dear up, you could move. That's great. Yeah. Just killing that bigotry with with three words. That's all she needs. And, and Dan Savage goes on to talk about how with the whole father-son thing, at the time in California, it wasn't uncommon for one partner in a gay couple to adopt the other so that they could live together and share legal rights. You know, those, those civil rights that they are still fighting for. But um in that way, Abby was a pretty, a pretty liberal voice at the time.
3: Yeah, the New York Times characterizes her thusly. They say, with her comic and flinty yet fundamentally sympathetic voice, Mrs. Phillips helped wrestle the advice column from its weepy Victorian past into a hard-nosed 20th century present. Therefore, you know, saving it and getting more and more people to write in because she's writing about modern problems, and she's answering in such a way that it just kind of cuts through the BS. Yeah, and her daughter, Jean, has since
2: taken over, the Dear Abby column, and I was surprised to learn that it still receives over 10,000 letters per week, and I was mentioned in the New York Times
0: obituary for Pauline Esther Friedman. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas it's and not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at bpcom America. apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day that's 3% on your favorite products at apple 2% on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: From football playoffs to basketball madness.
2: Um and it's funny that the the feud between Dear Abby and Ann Landers has continued since now both of the women have died, um, Ann Landers' daughter, Margot Howard, initially took over Slate's Dear Prudence column, but she later started up a feud with Amy Dickinson, who took over the Ann Landers column
3: after Eppie stepped down. So this is a strange back and forth. Yeah, and there were a lot of ugly words. Uh, this is coming from Slate in February 2009. Margot accused Amy Dickinson of claiming to be the quote next Anne Landers. You know, you're you're not, you you can't replace an original. Of course, you know, Epi wasn't the original either. But anyway, Dickinson said, you know, that's not the case. I never build myself that way. And she says that she in fact distanced herself from Landers when she entered the advice realm. And then she kind of maybe sticks sticks it to her. She says, my column is a whole new venture. It's funnier and snappier and more entertaining. Yeah,
2: and now she writes Ask Amy. Right. So she spun off into her own thing. But even though... Epi and Pauline are gone. Advice columns are still thriving, both in print and online. And the interesting thing is the queries have not changed all that much. We talked about in the first advice column episode how in the very first publication of advice columns in the Athenian Mercury, someone asked whether or not it was okay for a couple to shack up before they got married. Um, and there's something so abiding about the advice column format in terms of having those anonymous personas um and the the common questions that come up and just the comfort that we take in them simply existing, being able to read and possibly relate and maybe just be voyeurs into other people's lives and their problems. Um, And Dear Abby once said, quote, most people just want someone to listen to them without moralizing or sermonizing or sitting in judgment. That's good therapy, just to get it out of your system and tell somebody
3: yeah, and th- I mean things are changing obviously with with technology, but our problems do remain the same. Emily Yaffe, who writes Slate's Dear Prudence column now, says that yeah, they're they are a very old form and they are a reflection of the times and of the of the fact that basically human beings continue to grapple with the same issues that they always have despite these advances in technology. And she says, uh, when I started the column seven years ago, I got no letters about social media. But now Facebook is a frequent topic. People write about it all the time. The jealousy, boasting, cheating, manipulation... But these are still the same traditional issues that Dear Abby and Landers and people way back in the 17th, 18th and 19th century dealt with.
2: Yeah. And one thing that Yaffe and Amy Dickinson told uh, The Atlantic was that the number one topic that comes up so much that kind of makes both of them sick, how much we freak out over it. Weddings. Advice columns will exist as long as weddings exist because there there are so many etiquette questions tied up in it people's emotions flying off of the
3: handle uh so. was it was it Amy Dickinson who was like I don't care about your bridesmaid problem yes yeah I mean. Um, But one
2: thing, too, that hasn't changed is how few male advice columnists there are. I mean, Dan Savage is such an exception to the rule. He is America's foremost sex columnist. But in terms of the day-to-day advice columnist, Agony Ants over in the UK, we don't hear much about Agony Ants uncles. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't see a lot of male advice columnists. And when I was looking into research on maybe why that is, maybe gendered patterns of advice or gender in advice columns, all I got were these silly Internet comics about how if men were to write advice columns, they would just be mean Uh. and straightforward and and essentially just say,
3: I don't care about your bridesmaids. (laughs) <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, I mean, there's what? There's Ask a Guy or Ask a Dude. There, well, there are, there well, are. There's AskMen.com, which there you could is, say well, is yeah. one
2: massive advice column. Uh, but this is pretty timely because speaking of Slate, it just launched in February of 2013, Gentleman Scholar, which is a male advice column written by Troy Patterson. But even still looking at Gentleman Scholar, it's not so much of the personal queries of I have this personal problem and mm-hmm. how do I deal with it, it's still obviously like geared toward men of like, we'll be talking about how to pour a proper scotch, something like that.
3: Yeah. Is it is it bad for me to admit that when I started reading his stuff that I just kind of got lost in his language? I'm like, why are you writing? It's like, it, you're so opaque. I just want to read some information and you're just like... Basically, if if some people write in straight lines, he writes in curly cues, and it just drives me me crazy. Troy Patterson. Yeah, maybe you should write an advice column to the Gentleman's Scholar. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, listen. No, that's all right. There, there are other people out there to read who are more interesting, like Dan Savage. Like Dan Savage. Now I realize that
2: Dan Savage's podcast, let's say, is very NSFW. It is very. It's it's not necessarily uh, family friendly.
3: But... But it's still providing that community. Yes. It's still letting you know you're not alone out there. It's still an informative and educational tool. And it's just very interesting, entertaining, sympathetic, and kind all at the same time.
2: Yes. And and so, so straightforward. I'm a huge Dan Savage fan. And I love the fact that when Ann Landers' personal effects were auctioned off years ago, he bought her desk, and that is the desk at which he writes his Stranger column. And a couple of years ago, there was a cover story on Savage for the Washington Monthly magazine, because obviously The Stranger is published in Seattle, and the profiler talks about how Savage attributes his advice-giving empire to to the combined influence of Anne Landers and Xavier Hollander who wrote the Call Me Madam advice column for Penthouse which seems like it, it makes so much sense mm-hmm. when you think about Dan Savage's style yeah. with his the topics that he covers which is not always so lovey-dovey.
3: No, it's not, but I think, you know, talking about Anne Landers like cutting cutting straight to the point. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody might write a long letter about something that's Obviously off the beaten path, not mainstream, but he cuts through all of like the crazy details and just says, you know, don't be a mean person. Like or, be upfront with your partner,
2: etc. Or dump.
1: Yeah.
2: I can't say that word, him or her, already. Dump him or her. <laughs> yeah, there are even some calls on the the podcast that always give me a bit of a chuckle mm-hmm. when the caller is going on and on and on about their problem to the point that Dan will just stop the call and. Just say you just cut through Mm -hmm. all of the the noise and give them some straightforward advice. Because a lot of times when people have to spend so long describing their problem, the solution is much simpler, which is often you need to check yourself or you need to walk away (laughs) or things like that. But speaking of sex columnists, this is a little bit tangential, But I feel like it it, it still ties in a lot to things we talk about on the podcast. And is it something that we might not initially think of in terms of advice columns, uh, that might be more mainstream. But thanks to possibly Dan Savage and more specifically to Sex in the City, there has been a sex column revolution on college campuses. You're shaking your head, Caroline.
3: I'm shaking my head because Kristen Conger and I worked at the same college newspaper. Yes, we did. And I swear, I mean, mm, like steam is coming out of my ears. Like, why? (laughs) It makes me wish that college newspapers had a longer institutional memory slash editorial advisors who would shake these young people who feel the need to write these ill-informed, ignorant sex columns. You huh. said it. I've been meaning to get that out for a long time. But they're, they are. They're very popular. And yeah, I don't. It's great. Get sex advice from a 19 year old. That's fine. Well, it's a relatively
2: new thing. And I, I would argue that it's another chapter in this timeline of advice columns because it's just another signal of us opening up in terms of our acceptance of sexuality and how we approach that because we have younger people. Mm -hmm. It's not agony ants who are talking about it. It's agony sorority sisters who are talking about it. And Daniel Reimold wrote the book, Sex in the University, Celebrity Controversy and a Student Journalism Revolution, charting this proliferation of campus sex columns, starting with the 1996 launch of Sex on Tuesday at University of California at Berkeley, And he says that during any given semester, more than 200 sex and dating columns are being published in student newspapers, magazines, online outlets. But in the mid-90s, before that Sex on Tuesday column at Berkeley, the number of sex student columns was zero. And a lot of the people who write them, mostly women, say that you cannot overestimate the Carrie Bradshaw effect. Carrie Bradshaw, for those unfamiliar, being the protagonist sex columnist in Sex and the City.
3: Right. Yeah. Now, that was that was, uh, that was a complaint I might have voiced a time or two in college. Like, why do all these people think they are Carrie Bradshaw? Because it was
2: very glamorous. I was in journalism school at the time when Sex and mm-hmm. the City was still on HBO. Yeah. And I am not going to lie that it painted a very romantic portrait in my head of the combination of writing and dating. Yeah. And, and being open with your sexuality and sharing all of these things. Because there's a point where these sex columns are not so much advice giving, mm-hmm. but just oversharing.
3: Yes. And so it is another outlet to let people know that you might be going through the same thing that they are. However, I just, I, ugh, I just don't like it. Don't I don't like, like the- no, I don't like it! <laughs> and it's not because I don't like sex columns or don't like reading about dating issues and, and that kind of thing, I just- You're just saying it's more of like the I blind think, leading the blind. Right. I think it's just- I think it tends to be ridiculous. Yeah.
2: Well, how about this though, Caroline? There is an argument that just as relationship advice columns have been stand-ins for direct communication, like how with the Victorian problem pages, it was often women writing in asking how to decode male signals because she couldn't, you know, they couldn't sit down and have face-to-face dates they couldn't go to dinner she couldn't say do you want to date me or what dude (laughs) um you could argue that perhaps sex columns on campuses are stand-ins for proper sex ed so maybe that
3: god help us
2: well that's the thing maybe that it's a it's a signal of a, a greater need
3: to you know be informed about what's what sure you could also argue that some of these people are writing columns just so they can talk about like the fancy place they went to dinner and then sexual positions after dinner
2: into and, and and the cachet perhaps of calling oneself a sex columnist. Yes. There, yeah, there's a lot I thought we could do. We could even do like a <laughs> spin-off episode just on sex columns. Yeah. Because they are they are so common mm-hmm. and I have known sex columnists and it is it is interesting to to talk to them about, I don't know, I guess to see what what spins their motors about wanting to be so personal, yeah, in public, um, but. Uh, Another thing that has, you know, come alongside this, yeah, you have the more traditional like campus sex columns, but it's also a sign of this, perhaps the oversharing as an extension of us being so online and sharing everything and putting everything out there. And you would think in a way that living in the Internet age, as we do, that it would have signaled the death of advice columns, because why would you need advice if there's Google?
3: No, I would just think that you would go out and search for your little niche advice column. Exactly. There are more than ever before. Yeah. Yeah, we mentioned Dear Prudence over at Slate. Salon has Since You Asked, The New York Times, The Ethicist, Jezebel, Pop Psychology, although that's been retired. Correct? They do it it every now and then, but there's there's a book coming out. Oh, okay. So The Hairpin has Ask A, fill in the blank resident expert person that they're bringing in. And then there's Columbia University's Go Ask Alice, which we've actually referenced a lot Mm -hmm. on the podcast because it's not only very informative, but it's very... Detailed and not—it doesn't shy away from honestly answering sex questions and body questions.
2: Yeah, it's a—it's a great resource. I mean, it's more uh, cut and dried sex education, but still a really good resource. And it goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. from there on the internet. And one columnist who has emerged thanks to the internet, who we would be remiss to not mention, is Dear Sugar over at The Rumpus, and a couple of years ago, she came out from behind her anonymous Dear Sugar title because she was publishing a book. It's Cheryl Strayed, whose 2012 memoir Wild is still, I believe, a New York Times bestseller, and it has become one of the most beloved online advice columns. And I don't know if you've ever read Dear Sugar Caroline, but I got sucked into it last year, and I remember the first time I read one of her responses and I couldn't stop. I just mm-hmm. kept clicking through more and more and more because she not only is a wonderful writer but in she she writes with a style that she refers to as radical empathy where she ties in a lot of her own personal experiences and also you can tell that she really thinks about and cares about the person who is writing to her. And maybe we love it so much because that's something that's often missing from the internet because it's so fast and the attention span is so brief. And finally, here's a space where someone clearly sat down and took time and is not only giving them an answer, but also giving them part of herself. You can tell that I really love it.
3: <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. Um, well, you know, before, before she revealed her true identity, uh, Ruth Franklin at the New Republic was talking about just the whole the Internet phenomenon that go- but it's an Internet phenomenon, but it goes way back to the origins of advice columns as far as anonymity. And it doesn't really matter what about her is real and what about her is fake, because the advice she gives is so thorough, but so touching and so. You know, those people who created, quote-unquote, societies to answer questions in the 17th century, that was their version. And now we have people like Sugar slash Cheryl Strayed who you know, she existed behind this sort of curtain, hiding her true identity, but it just let people feel more comfortable coming to her with very private things.
2: Yeah, and um, it was something else that might resonate with some of our Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners. Um, in an interview with Strayed uh, to Bitch Magazine, she talks about how feminism informs the column. She, she says, Feminism is who I am. It's the lens from which I view the world. Everything in sugar is feminist. It should be stamped the This is written by a feminist, and uh, if you haven't checked out Dear Sugar over at The Rumpus, I highly recommend it. There's now a collection of some of her advice columns in the book, Tiny Beautiful Things, that you can also look at as well. Tiny Beautiful Things is one of the most popular, one of those clicked-on columns from there, Um, but I feel like she's really... She, she hasn't reinvented advice columns, but I think she represents the best of what it can be. Yeah. In terms of, like, the personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Dan Savage has the sex stuff covered. Cheryl Strayed, she's got your personal stuff covered. Yeah. And in between, who knows what you, And in between, you have 19-year-olds on college campuses driving Caroline insane.
3: <laughs> I know. Well, they don't drive me insane anymore because I don't read college newspapers. One, I did have a a favorite in middle school. I had a favorite online advice columnist, Breakup Girl. Do you remember her at all? No. She ended up transitioning to, I want to say MSN and I want to say her column was just like Ask Lynn. Someone out there needs to correct me if I'm wrong. But she was so great. And her column, it was that anonymity. It was just Breakup Girl. Yeah. And her picture was a cartoon of a blonde woman with a cape and a little outfit and some boots and she answered so sensitively and with humor and kindness and you know she just cut through the through the BS also all of these relationship questions from young people. Yeah. She. Took young people seriously, and so as a middle schooler, it was so. Even though I wasn't necessarily having these problems, I wasn't dating yet or any of that stuff. It was so nice to read that, like somebody taking young people seriously.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of Rookie Mag's feature "Ask a Grown Man," which is a video advice column, and they've they've talked to John Hamm and other people. John Hamm. Do I need to say more, John Hamm? <laughs> but where they take younger people's questions, younger girls' questions, and these grown men answer them, and it's very endearing. Because it's the same thing. It's taking mm-hmm. these problems seriously. Because, I mean, we're still... If you look at the advice columns you and I were probably reading when we were 14, 15, and the ones we might be reading today, it's, it's all different versions of the same stuff that goes yeah. over and over and over again. And uh, one thing, though, that we weren't able to find... In our research on advice columns, was any kind of analysis on the quality right. of the the advice that's given? Because I feel like a, a lot of it's more like a psychological thing that we glean from it. This like comfort mm-hmm. of knowing that other people have problems, maybe their problems aren't as bad as ours. Seeing that there's a solution, mm-hmm. so maybe the maybe it doesn't matter all that much. I mean, there there were a couple of papers looking at. Sex health questions and health p- specific, like medical advice, right. and usually the prognosis was it's not so great. Talk to your doctor. But in terms of the the personal quandaries,
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's a little more vague.
3: As yeah, as far as the effect mm-hmm. that it has on people, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've been asking the same questions for four hundred years. And why?
2: Yeah, I guess because we just—I don't know—I uh, sounds like I need to write to an advice column. Well, dear Athenian Mercury, <laughs> why must we keep asking the same question? And then that Michael Jackson song, "Human Nature," cues up. <laughs> I wish that song could cue up right now to take yeah. us to take us out. Because <laughs> I think that's all we got on yeah. advice columnists. I had a lot of fun researching it, mm-hmm. and I—I I have a obviously a soft soft spot for advice columns and i appreciate when listeners trust us enough to to ask our advice on things yeah as well because we've
3: had experiences
2: we've had experiences and we try to practice radical empathy as much as we can as yeah. well because i think that is an excellent guiding principle indeed so with that thoughts quandaries Let us know all of them. Yeah, Momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. And, of course, you can hit
0: us up on Facebook as well. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of <laughs> me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget
3: to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. And now, for some Letters. <laughs>
2: Well, we've got a couple of letters here in response to our episode on vaginal rejuvenation slash labiaplasty slash designer vaginas. And these are from some female listeners. In the last podcast, we read some responses from a couple male listeners. Here's what some ladies got to say. Alyssa writes, I really identify with this podcast. I can understand how a lot of women could be self-conscious about the appearance of their vaginas because usually the only other ones we see are in porn. What else do we have to compare ourselves to? I was extremely self-conscious during puberty, not about my vagina, but my breasts for the same reason. I hadn't seen porn yet, but all of the breasts I did see were in movies and they were always really perky and round with small hard nipples. Mine started growing in more cone-shaped with larger nipples and I was so afraid that my breasts were ugly and no man would find them attractive and I'd never get to go skinny dipping with my friends or do other random naked activities that I imagined I would do when I got older. However, porn actually helped in my situation because it wasn't professional porn, it was amateur porn. Amateur porn is normal people, so once I got older and started seeing it, I was exposed to all kinds of different-looking breasts and vaginas, and I realized that my breasts were actually pretty normal-looking. The perky round ones in the movies are pretty rare, and when they actually do exist, I'm sure they don't stay that way for long. So thank you, Alyssa.
3: And I have a letter here from Caitlin who wants to alert us to a new perspective. She says, I, like most women, was not aware of the variety of vulva sizes and shapes out there and have definitely looked at my own and wondered if it is quote-unquote okay. It wasn't until I watched the British documentary The Perfect Vagina that I discovered that many women have labia minora that are longer than their labia majora. My vulva is naturally close to what you and Jezebel have described as the Barbie with clamshell-like labia majora and minora that are very small and are hidden completely by the majora. In both the documentary, in the Jezebel article, and comments, there were many people saying that the Barbie-style vulva is horrifying, not because of the surgery involved, but because it creates an aesthetic that is prepubescent, non-sexual, and like a little girl. Well, as a woman who has tiny labia minora, I just have to say, my vulva and I are definitely not prepubescent and are very much sexual. I hope that all of these conversations help people realize that there is no best kind of vulva and that people will not demean small minora in the process of celebrating all sizes of labia. So thank you, Katie, for lending that perspective. There is no correct vulva.
2: Yeah, and that is such a good point of in the process of kind of taking a more critical eye to the ideal. To not say that if someone does have that porn ideal, that that is bad in any, any way whatsoever. Yeah. So thanks to everyone who's written into us. Keep the letters coming. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send them. You can also contact us on Facebook. Start a conversation there. Like us while you're at it. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and you can also follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com And if you would like to do a good thing for your brain this week, you should head over to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.